right. Well, for those of you that don't know, we have had a flood in our church, so we're in this space temporarily and uh, enjoying it. I appreciate everybody's attitude and spirit, man. It's just been good. It's actually been better for whatever reason. Just I think just because, you know, when we face when we face stuff that Satan wants to use to distract us and get us off target, that's the time when God can show Himself strong, and and He is because you guys love Him and you love each other, and so uh, it's nothing for us to to meet in this room uh, and to have that, have our place torn apart right now. So. It is what it is, but for those of you that aren't members of the Gathering Place that are visiting today, a number of you are first-timers or are here, just been visiting, and, uh, and some of you haven't been here since we had the flood, so welcome to the Gathering Place Fellowship Hall style. Uh, what we're doing this year is uh, we feel like God is, we don't feel like, we're, we're confident that God is calling us as a church, has given us a vision to work on becoming a community that blesses. And so what does that mean? Uh, we don't know all the details of it, but I do know that it, it means that something's going to happen, first of all, internally for every one of you. As a part of the Gathering Place Church, there's something is going on inside your life that for some reason, one reason or another, and, I, and we're going to talk about that today, uh, one of the reasons, all of it has its source in the same place, and that is we have an enemy who's against us, but... For some reason, we have not been able to do the simple things, to just focus on abiding in Christ, to focus on blessing other people, to focus on committing to community. Last year, the vision was to keep it simple, to, to, to bring it down to the basics, and, and God gave us our ABCs, abiding in Christ, blessing, the, blessing others, and then committing to community. It's not complicated. It's very simple to do, but we have not been successful <laughs> As a church, we've been robbed of the simplicity of that uh, because Satan hates us and he knows the power of what happens when we finally do get on board uh, with just loving God, knowing God, and letting it have its effect. But each person, first of all, in order for us to become a community that blesses, we know this, that something has to happen in you. Like, here's what I know. I got a lot of eyes on me right now. M most of your eyes are here, but... But in the simple times when, we talk, when we're speaking truth and you're here, you're here to hear truth that you don't actually hear it because you're distracted by whatever. It's amazing how Satan will take our minds and turn it off whenever a word is being spoken. You need to know for us to be able to be a community that blesses, it's dependent upon you as being a part of this community. You doing your part by just loving God, knowing God, deepening your relationship with God. We are not going to be a community that blesses. We're not going to be a community, biblical community, until each person comes to know God and commits to deepening our relationship with God. So we know that that's part of it. We also know that part of it is that it involves us being together. A community, a biblical definition of community is, is that we are joined together in unity, koinonia fellowship, because of our love for God and our passion for him. That when we get closer to the Holy Spirit, automatically we get closer to one another and drawn to each other. And there are, there are de demonstrations and explanations about uh, in, in uh, defi the definition of what community is throughout Scripture. There's different aspects of community that we're going to look at this year. Don't even know what all those will be. And then being a community that blesses means that we're finally going to, hopefully as a church, buy into this vision that God has for us to not only be personally 
committed to him and abiding in him, not only being committed to each other and walking together with Christ, but also that we begin to invite people, affect people in the community in such a way that they're drawn to us. That God begins to draw people to the Jesus in you, and you know you know it's not you, and you bring them in to be a part of this community. I've never uh, found a person who uh, who was seeking for God, who walked into this congregation and didn't feel God was here, feel loved, feel the same kind of desire to be here. I love it when people walk in and say, this is what I've been looking for. And there are people all over this community that work around you and work around me uh, hang out at the coffee shops that we go to and eat in the places where we eat and uh, live in the neighborhoods where we live who are looking for what you guys have. And so God wants us to, to bless the community by giving him to them, giving them Jesus instead of our brand of religion or our brand of, brand of religious activity, right? So y'all with me say, oh, yeah. Everybody alert this morning? Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into the message today. We've been talking about uh, when we ask the Lord, when I've been praying and asking the Lord, where will we go to find out what it means to be a community that blesses? You know, you know I like to preach through a book, but I don't always have to do that. But God led, us, led me to the book of Acts over and over again in my personal time with the Lord and praying through and seeking over the, uh, the end of last year and the first part of this year, asking God, where do we need to go to, to talk about being a community that blesses God? The scriptures that kept coming up were the bo- in the book of Acts. And it makes sense because in the book of Acts, uh, it's a great case study to help us to see what it's like to be a community that is drawn together by the Holy Spirit, a community that, of individuals who are personally experiencing the Holy Spirit, and to be a community that because we are drawn to God and filled with God's Spirit and operating in God's Spirit that the world around us is being affected. So we've started the study in the book of Acts. We looked at how the community of believers that were filled with the Holy Spirit were blessing the surrounding world by revealing the truth about Jesus through their daily interactions with people, not through the preaching of the word only, but through their daily interactions with people and their submission to the moment-by-moment promptings of the Holy Spirit. the, The whole world was changed as a result of that. So we looked at chapter 1. And the first part of chapter 2, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus set the stage for a spiritual awakening by first giving proof of his resurrection to the disciples, which we have the historical testimony of over 500 people who saw Jesus after his resurrection to, to let us know and have that foundation that Jesus is risen from the dead, that Jesus gave them a command to wait on the Holy Spirit. And we have asked Each of you, and and God has asked us as a congregation to wait on the Holy Spirit, not to move ahead and have our own plans and agendas and not to follow uh, the agenda of other churches, but just to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance. They were given a command not to focus on the timing or the results, but just to trust in the Lord, and we have committed to that. We're not trying to make this thing happen at a certain pace or to push it forward before God's ready. He gave them a promise of the Holy Spirit's coming in power, and they were holding on to that. And we also have held on to that. And then ultimately in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and gives them each their own personal experience 
their own personal manifestation of the Holy Spirit where they knew that they knew that they knew the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And in their case, they, he literally, the Holy Spirit descended invisibly as a tongue of fire on each one of the 120 who were gathered in the upper room. A visible and personal experience of the Holy Spirit. We have desperately needed that in our churches. Churches in this area are almost, it seems, immune to and afraid of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have to be some crazy, wild manifestation. There will never be a time again, I would assume, when a visible tongue of fire will descend on 120 people. But it was needed because these first disciples needed to know that they knew that they knew the Holy Spirit had come. But we also need our own assurances that the Holy Spirit is in us. And the way that happens is when we obey God and the Holy Spirit moves and works in us and reveals God to us, as, as, as uh, Jesus told the disciples in John uh, chapter 14, that he would manifest himself to us as we obeyed him. And then the last thing that happened in, in preparation for setting the stage was that people uh, around them were ga- people were gathered around them to hear the message and spread it around the world. And we have said that God has done that for us. He's brought people around us who are hungry for what, what God is doing in our lives. They're, they want the Holy Spirit to live in their lives. They want God to manifest himself in real ways in their lives. And then before moving on, the Lord urged me last week to prepare us by taking a look at the opposition that we're going to face, that, that they faced in the book of Acts. And we'll see it as we go through the book of Acts. But to set the stage again from the other power that's at work in the book of Acts. It's not only the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but there's another spiritual power that's at work. The power of the enemy that we will face also as we join God in this movement to touch our community for the cause of Christ. Last week we looked at Ephesians 6 with a focus on knowing the opposition. Just knowing the opposition with the hopes that the gathering place would be aware of an invisible war that's going on. We have an enemy. We saw that our enemy fights on the spiritual level. It's, a, it's an invisible war. It's not the stuff that we can see. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, so it's not the people that seem to be opposing you. It's not the systems or the government. That's the problem. We're, uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we're not warring against flesh and blood, but we're, we're warring against powers, unseen powers in spiritual places, Satan and his demonic forces are what we're fighting against. And we need to be acutely aware of this because what happens is we start fighting with people to have our way or to accomplish our goals and we we need to realize we're fighting at the wrong level. We need to be fighting against the real enemy who is Satan who influences people and moves people. And until a spiritual something happens inside of them, they're never going to be able to, to live a life of that demonstrates the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit, and neither are we. So we need to be acutely aware of, the, of his tactics, as we talked about last week. That's the, the ways that Satan works in the world and on us particularly. But Scripture also revealed to us last week that we're not fighting on equal ground because Christ has, has already won the victory. So we're not, we're not fighting for victory in our lives. Sometimes it feels like we're struggling to get victory. And, and the truth is, we're not. There, the victory's already been won in Christ. We saw that last week. So we have no, no cause to fear Satan at all. 
And yet so many times, man, we start talking about spiritual warfare and Satan. And as you have experienced this week, many of you, and, and we shared this morning in our worship team, and so many people are experiencing right now the enemy trying to manifest himself in their lives. And he has power in this world that's been given to him by Satan to, to move and to work. And he brings illness. And, and, and right now we have a lot of people sick. And he brings, uh, he brings tragedy and circumstances that make it difficult for us to continue to walk with Christ. But he's already lost if we'll just stand in the victory that we have. So we closed out last week with five things to remember. I hope you can remember these, and I'll keep bringing them up until you do. But, but if you haven't written these down or you don't, don't have these in your memory, take a picture of this slide. Five things to remember based on last week's message. Number one, Satan is defeated. Number two, Jesus destroys the work of the devil. He doesn't do it sometimes. He does it all the time. He destroys the work of the devil. Number three, we are victors in Christ, not in our own power, not in our own wisdom, but victors in Christ. Number four, we have power and resources to resist Satan's demonic attacks. We have that power. God has given us power and resources to resist the satanic attacks that come our way. No need to be overwhelmed. And number five, we must learn how to put on the full armor of God. And that number five is where we're going to take up today. We need to learn today what the Word says about putting on spiritual armor. Today, God is going to teach us how to get dressed, (laughs) literally, how to appropriate God's protection in our daily life. This is, we're just talking about from a defensive mode. How do do we appropriate the, the protection that God has given us? Now, listen, I said appropriate intentionally. Because we don't, have to just, we don't have to get this. We don't have to go find it. We don't have to work in order to get God's, God's protection in our daily lives against the enemy. We already have it because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We just need to appropriate it. We need to put it on and continually wear it. So that's where we're going today. It's what we're going to spend our time doing. So let's pick up, and we read this last week, but we'll read a portion of the passage from last week. In Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 17, Paul says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. So there's a day of evil that comes and it comes all the time. These are days, but when that day of evil comes, when you're tempted by the enemy to fall and when you're you're experiencing illness and you're experiencing difficulties, and you're experiencing circumstances that seem overwhelming, when those days of evil come, that you might be able to stand. So he says, put on the armor of God so that you will be appropriating, literally, the protection that God's given you to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we're going to talk about through verse 15 today. How do we appropriate God's protection? First of all, be a good soldier of the commander. This is not 
You know, it, there's an understood you in here. You put on the armor of God. This is the commander-in-chief who's telling us how to appropriate our weapons to protect ourselves against the enemy of God. Who is our commander in the fight? Say it out loud. Who's our commander? God, Jesus, right? The Godhead is our commander in this fight. But if you, if you think of Jesus as being our commander, Jesus, the one who knows firsthand by experience every tactic of the enemy, all those things that we looked at, hopefully you looked at this past week, he knows every tactic of the enemy, not in his brain, but in his experience. The Bible says that he's been tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. So our commander has already had every attack or tactic or attempt of the enemy thrown against him, and he has victory. Who better to tell us how to defeat the enemy whenever he starts to try to attack us? So we need to realize who our commander is, first of all. That's the way we appropriate the protection. Realize who our commander is. Quit getting your advice from self-help books and from people in your life and from logic and reason and get your advice from God himself. He lives in us and he commands us to put on the full armor of God in this passage. In Weiss' commentary, he talks about how the construction of this sentence in the original language is a command with military, he calls it military snap and curtness. A command to be obeyed at once and once for all. So putting on this armor is not a one-time thing. Or it's, not, it's not something we put on and forget about and then take off and then put back on. It's a once-for-all thing. The Christian is to take up and put on the armor of God as a once-for-all act and keep that armor on. During the, during the course of your entire life, once you put the armor on, which you have, you need to keep it on. The problem is not putting it on for most of us. We have the Holy Spirit living in our lives, but we are not keeping it on. We understand some truth. We understand the, the truths of God, and we're trying to live our lives based on that, but we're not keeping it in our minds, in our hearts. We should never be relaxing the disciplines necessary for this constant use of the protection of God. So it's more than just picking it up and putting it on. It's keeping it on for life. And as we describe the armor today and the meaning of each piece of armor, just realize that this is something you should be doing continually. And the problem is that we let our guards down. We, 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 we don't hold our armor up. We don't realize what we have in Christ. We don't appropriate these, these truths in our lives. So it's significant. Because Satan is watching for the slightest opening in your life, just the littlest piece of flesh that reveals itself so that he can come in and shoot his arrows of defeat. So number one, be a good soldier and obey the commander. Number two, put on the spiritual armor because it is a, a prerequisite for standing firm. He says, having put on the armor, stand firm. We need to realize that we can't stand firm without this armor. These three pieces of spiritual armor that we're going to talk about today are necessary for standing against the schemes of the enemy. If we're going to defeat him, 
We must have the armor on. So as we open up this truth, I'm confident that God's going to help you to realize, as I have, that the reason that Satan has been able, for instance, to distract us at the gathering place from abiding in Christ, blessing others, and committing to community is because we are not continually putting on the armor of of God. We're not appropriating continually this armor of protection that God's given us. So this is hugely significant for us. I've been praying this past week, and I've been praying that we would, that you guys would, who would, whoever would be here today, and whoever would hear this on our podcast, would plug in with your brain and with your heart, and realize the significance of putting on this armor. So. Be a good soldier, obey the commander, and realize that this is a prerequisite for you to stand firm. Wonder why you can't stand firm? He says, having put on the armor, stand firm. We need this spiritual armor. All right, so let's go then to the three pieces of armor. This is what we'll spend our time with today, the rest of our time. In verse 14, chapter 6, he says, stand firm then, number one, with the belt of truth around your waist. The belt of truth. The belt was very significant to a Roman soldier because every other piece of armor was connected to the belt. The belt held everything together. It also provided a way for the, for the, the soldier in his tunic to, to raise up his tunic and put it and tuck it in so that he could have, so he could have his legs would not be uh, bothered by the tunic. That he had access to our free, uh, freedom to, to run and to move. So everything is, is based on this very first thing that that Paul is giving us, this belt of truth. It's super significant because everything's connected to it. He says the belt of truth. What is truth? It means candor. It means sincerity. Truthfulness. So we're to put on this belt of sincerity and candor and truthfulness. This first piece of armor, I think, is so significant because... It's a direct defense against the very first attack that Satan has. It's his number one tactic. It's the one that he used in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis. What was it? Deception. Remember when Satan was, as a serpent, he was dressing up his lies to make them appealing to Eve in the garden. And he deceived her by making her question God's goodness. To, to question the accuracy of God's command. When she said, God said not to eat of it or we would die. And he says, you will not die. The deception of the enemy. The lies that, that Satan tells. And then quickly he followed up with another lie. If you eat this, he knows that if you eat this, you'll be like he is. You'll know good from evil. And he takes that truth, which was truth. And he twists it, making sin look appealing to Eve. And she takes of the tree and eats and gives it to Adam, and they eat. Listen, what God speaks is truth. What God says is truth. What he says in his word, what his spirit speaks to you in consistency with his word in your life, that's truth. What God speaks is truth. And and we need to constantly turn to the truth because Satan is constantly telling us, is lies. The problem for us at the gathering place is we don't know the truth. We need to put on the belt of truth. 
How do we do that? First of all, by studying the Word, by listening to the Word, by meditating on the Word, by reading the Word, immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Paying attention. You know, I've already made this statement today, and some of you were caught when I said it, and you, if I'll, you'll be caught now if you weren't. How easy is it for us to let our, for Satan to take our minds off to some weird place where we're looking at, we're thinking about lunch today instead of studying his word, instead of hearing his word, instead of applying his word. This word is for every person in this room. And if we're going to put on the belt of truth, we need to know the word of God. We need to take advantage of every opportunity that we have to put the word in our minds. Instead, what's happening is what Paul describes in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he, he tells Timothy in verses 2 through 4, preach the word, be ready, in season, out of season, Repro- reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and, and teaching. And here's why. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure or put up with Sound teaching or doctrine. But having itching ears, they will gather around themselves or accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Man, if this doesn't describe not the world today, but the church today, then I'm confused. You tell me that we're not, as, as the church today, people who call ourselves believers today, are not gathering around ourselves teachers who say things that compromise the truth of God's word. That we gather, Satan lies to us and says, oh, God didn't really mean that. In regard to any, you pick your sin. What sin are you walking in right now? You don't have to say it out loud. You know what it is. What sin has Satan convinced you is okay in your life? It's all right to hold on to that. God didn't really mean that. And you've explained away the truth instead of putting, putting aside the myth. And you gather some people around you that say it's okay as well. And that, that makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? Man, that's such a lie of the enemy. That's the way Satan deceives us. We need to put on the belt of truth. We need to know the truth if we're going to be set free from the enemy's tactics. He is constantly lying to us. If Satan ever does anything, it is his natural, native language to tell a lie. And I have so many friends who've allowed Satan to take them down a path that begins with freedom. The freedom that they have in Christ begins with, with walking in freedom, and then they take that, and Satan ca- causes them to take that freedom and that beautiful thing that God created and to take it out of context and to take it too far. Friend after friend after friend, sin after sin, different types and categories of sin. And you know, you have friends that way too, and you may be one of those people. All of us have done it to some degree. But where we take something that God desires for our good, and we take it out of context, and Satan lies to us and tells us, it's better if you take it this way than if you take it God's way. And we can gather people around us and say, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not being specific because I don't want to name a sin. I want you to think about sin in your own life. What ways have you been, been allowing Satan to take you down a path that began with freedom and has moved you into sin? Putting on the belt of truth means filling our minds with the truth of God's word and asking the Holy Spirit to interpret for us how that should look in our lives. And the way to do that is to immerse ourselves in the word of God. 
Listen, let me just give this example in a categorical way. An example of how Satan works. This is what he does. First of all, Satan will tell you, man, legalism is binding you. Is that true or not? Yes? Okay. Yes, it is. Legalism binds us, and we have, we've been set free from legalism, but he would tell us, legalism binds you, and that's truth. Satan wants you to believe that. He's okay with us as a church. He's been great with us as a church, talking about how we've been bound by our religious practices in the past, religious practices that have not been biblical, that have been extra-biblical, just like in the, in the, Fer- the Pharisees were trying to add uh, the, the keeping of religious uh, rules and, and, and laws uh, regarding eating and, and circumcision, adding that to the gospel. We know that legalism is wrong. Jesus teaches us that in the gospels. We've seen it over and over again. And Satan will also say that you don't have to read the Bible to have a relationship with God. Is that true? Is it? Yes, it's true. You can have a relationship with God that doesn't require you reading the Bible. So he's, tr- he's telling us the truth. Yet legalism binds you. Don't read the Bible. It's, it's tedious. It's, it's, it's too much for you. You don't need to be reading that. Enjoy yourself. Have a good life. And then Satan will take that quickly and turn it into, I don't need the truth from God's word in my life. Is that true? No. You need the word of God in your life. You need the truth of God's word. You need, desperately need that in your life, but you don't need it for the reasons that you used to read it. You need it because it is a protection against the enemy. The, the belt of truth is necessary for us to be protected against the enemy. So listen, fill your head and your heart with the truth to combat the, the evil schemes of the enemy. Our, our commander-in-chief has given us a command to follow. You want to talk about, from his perspective, how he defeated sin? How he defeated the enemy and protected himself? It's by knowing the truth, and we see it in his temptations in the wilderness. He gives truth to combat the enemy. We need the truth of God. So here's the practical step, church. Number one for today, read the Word. Study it. Pray. Listen to it. Listen to sermons from godly people who are speaking the truth related to God's word. People that God, that Holy Spirit leads you to, listen to, to sermons, read, pray the word, memorize scripture related to the weaknesses that you have in your life. Fill your mind with the word of God, the belt of truth. Another way that Satan keeps us in bondage in regard to this belt of truth is by convincing us to hide the truth about the sin in our lives. We lie to others and then to God. We lie to ourselves first and then we lie to others and then to God. Ultimately, we, we begin to believe the lies that we're telling ourselves and telling others. We begin to believe those lies and we, we, and we are in bondage to those things. Or we hide our sin by shifting the blame to somebody else. We, it's okay for us to be angry because of what he did or what she did. It's okay for us to gossip because they're wrong. And we shift the blame, and we're, we never come to the point of, of candor, as, this, as this, that word, I said the word mean, meant in the Scripture. This belt of truth means candor. It means we're honest with ourselves and with others. Rather than being angry and holding bitterness and holding grudges against people and being jealous of people, we're angry, we're, we're, we're dealing with our own sins and being open with our sins. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know what I've discovered at the gathering place, and I'm so thankful for this. One of the main goals of our life groups is to be a place where we can be honest and open and transparent and everything is kept in confidence. And we're willing to, we're, we, we build relationships in such a way uh, that it's better than it is in this congregation on a Sunday morning that you would never open up maybe to this whole group because you don't know them well enough, but you build relationships with few people and you feel honest, uh, the ability to be honest about your own sin. This is the first church I've ever been in in my life where I believe people are being honest. Man, we got some real stuff coming out in life groups. I, when I sit in life, I, I, I try to go to every life group at least twice a month. And when I sit in those life groups and I hear the stuff that comes out, I'm just, man, thank God. We will never be victorious in defeating the enemy if we keep acting like we have no sin or pretending in front of other people that, that sin doesn't exist. But when someone confesses their sin, you know what it does with somebody else in the group? It makes them be willing to confess their sins, and now we're growing close to each other. Now we're being honest with one another. If we don't start where we are, then we can't move forward with God. We need to be honest and truthful. Success in spiritual battles, I think, requires our willingness to tell the truth about ourselves. Tell tell the truth to ourselves. And then tell the truth to others and to God. It's okay. We've been freed up by the grace of God to to be able to tell him about our sins. Why hide those things like God doesn't know it? Be truthful to yourself. Honest with yourself. It's okay that you're weak. God already knows that. You're not telling him anything he doesn't know. And it doesn't affect him in any way if you're his child. He looks at the righteousness of Christ, so why not be honest with God? Putting on the belt of truth not only means knowing the truth from God's word, but it also means being truthful. And the gathering place, I believe, is a safe place to tell the truth about yourself. You will not be judged. You will not be rejected if you tell the truth to this body. You will never find rejection because of your sin. So get open so that you can find healing and begin defeating the enemy by defeating the sin that holds on to you. Scripture says, confess your sins that you might be healed. Literally, spiritual healings comes from being honest. And some of us are caught in this trap where there are expectations for us. I I got caught in this trap. As a pastor, there were expectations that I'm supposed to have it all together. And all of my ministry up until the gathering place, I spent trying to play the game of being super spiritual and having everything together because I thought if I'm honest and I tell people where I really am, then they're going to fall or everything's going to fall apart. They expect me to be better. Well, church, listen. I am not better. I'm not better than anybody in this, in this building. I have my issues. I've got sin in my own life. I've got stuff I've been struggling with. I feel like Paul in chapter 7 of Romans, things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. My, this body is waging war against my mind. My old temptations, my old default modes, my old default ways of dealing with people, my old default tendency to judge and to be approved of by people, all that keeps playing in my life. But I need to tell the truth about that. And I'm just thankful that at the gathering place I can tell that truth and I can release those lies 
Because to not release the lies, it's like, it's like trying to run a race with God. Paul gives this illustration. It's like trying to run a race with God if I had 100-pound weights on both foot. That I'm going to actually run the race. That living, living for God with the weight of our sin around our ankles was never God's intent. He talks about the faith of all these great men in chapter 11 of Hebrews. All these great men and women of God who by faith had their right relationship with God and walked with Him. And then he gives us this challenge in, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses of men and women of faith through history, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that gave us the faith, and he's the one that's going to perfect the faith. It's not you by your own efforts who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and, seated at the right, and is seated at the right hand of God, uh, of the throne of God. So listen, church, put on the belt of truth. Be honest about your sin and apply God's truth to combat the enemy's attacks. Our commander-in-chief says, this is number one, put on the belt of truth. Let's be like the psalmist in Psalm 139. I love this. This is the attitude we need to have. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Don't hide your sins from God. Confess all that you know, and then ask God to reveal more. You know, when we understand the grace of God, we want God to reveal sin in our lives so we can get it out. So search me, God. Show me the places where I'm constantly falling where I have sin in my life. Show me the places where I've turned aside from the truth and turned aside to a myth. Show me those places. Lead me in the way everlasting. The belt of truth. Second. Second piece of armor that we're commanded to put on is found also in Ephesians 6.14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covered more than just the midsection. It was literally from the, from the neck down. It covered uh, from the neck to the, to the waist. It covered all the vital organs. It was called the, the heart protector. It covered all the vital organs of a Roman soldier. So it was so necessary that, that the enemy would not be able to shoot an arrow and hit a vital organ. Now, he might hit a leg or an arm, but he's not going to kill him by hitting a vital organ. So the breastplate is hugely significant. And he says the breastplate is the breastplate of righteousness. It's uprightness. It's right living. It's integrity in our lifestyle and character. It's conforming our will to God's will. Now, although this righteousness is rooted, listen to me carefully, it's rooted in the uh, objective righteousness that we already have in Christ. This righteousness he's talking about in this, in this uh, verse, the breastplate of righteousness, although it is rooted in the objective righteousness that every person who's a believer has in Christ, that is the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us. This word is not talking about that kind of, uh, just that kind of righteousness. It's rooted in that. Uh, we have no righteousness of our own. It's the righteousness of Christ. But this is, this is uh, subjecting our will or 
are changing our will to, to join God's will. It, it is moving in obedience to the things that God says to us. This breastplate of righteousness that, that literally protects all that, that, uh, that, gives, that makes life worth living is literally the life that we have in Christ. It's the abundant life that Jesus described. In order to have that life, it is, it is in acts of righteousness. It is us being obedient to the righteousness of God. It is following His will. It's obeying what He says. We need to know the truth before we can apply it. That's the belt of truth. But once we know it, we need to apply it. To know the truth alone and not to apply it to our lives is, is not going to protect us. We're leaving our vital organs open. It's like wearing the belt but not putting on the shield. Knowing the truth is not enough. And we, 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 so many people today act like a knowledge of the Word of God is enough. Like if I just can go study the Greek and understand it in its original language or the Hebrew, and I can study it and be able to read it in, in the original languages and know the meanings, I got it. No, you don't. Your breastplate is wide open. All the vital organs are wide open to the enemy. Matter of fact, the enemy will take that truth and use it against you. If you don't understand that it's applying the truth that you've learned, putting it into practice, we don't even know the Lord the way the Scripture describes it, that gnosko, knowledge by experience, until we have obeyed what God says. The essence of abiding, as you know, is obeying what the Scripture says. It's worthless to have the knowledge and not to apply it. You are, you have, you are not defended against the enemy by putting knowledge in your brain. James talks about it this way. He describes the difference between faith and faith with works. He says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It's useless. That word means useless. So knowledge of truth that combats the, the lies of Satan and protects us from his lies is truth that we are applying. Now, some of it's going to happen internally. Like things like fear, some of you, a number of us have struggled with fear in our lives, even in this study as we've been talking about the enemy, it has caused some of you to have fear of Satan. Well, fear is an internal change that happens, but to apply the truth means that, that I take that truth and when Satan tempts me to fear, that I take it captive in my brain and make it obedient to the scripture. That I have no reason to fear. All those verses that we talked about last week, it's applying something internally. Ultimately, it'll make its way out because you won't act like a person who's living in fear. But that's an internal thing. Self-worth is also where we find our worth is knowing who you are in Christ, reminding yourself of that is, spiritual, is a spiritual battle. It's applying the truth. It's saying, I am these things. And when Satan attacks you and says you're worthless and you remind him, no, I'm not. That's the way we do battle against the enemy. But here Paul is talking about applying the truth to our actions and it's the essence of abiding in Christ and producing fruit and ultimately knowing God by experience, which is way different than knowing him in our, in our heads. Would you all agree with that? Say, oh, yeah. I mean, so many, that's, that is what makes the gathering place the gathering place, is we are determined to know God in our experience. Now, if we're willfully disobedient to the will of God, then we're opening ourselves up for demonic attack. Satan loves for us to know the word and not apply it. He loves for us to be satisfied with more knowledge, to be, to, to be fixated on knowledge and never to move to obedience. 
Don't let Satan fill your hearts with guilt and condemnation. Even if you're failing to follow God's plan right now, don't let Satan do that. If you're not following God in some way, just realize that you are opening yourself up to attacks of the enemy. And, and, and a good ongoing practice for us is self-evaluation. Take some time to think about your own life. Right now, just, just do this for a second. Y'all with me? Do some self-evaluation. Here's another thing Satan does. He, he tends to keep us focused on certain sins, maybe even that we had in our past, or certain sins that are socially unacceptable. And because we don't have, and we'll focus on those, we say, well, thank God, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not having adultery. We focus on that rather than focus on the fact that I do have jealousy. We need to take the time to do some self-evaluation. If we're going to take seriously this, this call for us to, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, then we need to evaluate ourselves. Ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom about the sin that's in our lives because some of it we just can't see. See if there's anything in your time, in your money, use of money, in the use of your relationships. See if there's anything that you're doing that reflects a direct defiance to the commands of God. The commands that he's given to you, some of them are going to be personal. If it's wrong to you, it's wrong. And then put on the breastplate of righteousness. Do it daily. This is an ongoing thing. We need to just keep our lives in the will of God. It's not a one time, put it on, take it off at night. Put it on, take it off when we go somewhere where we're going to sin. We put it on all the time. Constant evaluation and application of the truth to our lives. Some people have made a practice of putting on the armor each day verbally in a way that they think that the words magically become some kind of incantation. If I say, I am putting on the belt of truth. And that, that saying those words means that it's on. That, that is ludicrous. This is very specific truth that Paul is giving us. And it's so consistent with the whole of the word of God. We need to apply the truth of, of, of God's word. It's not a magic incantation. It's a, pra- a practical step that requires action on our part. All right, number three, third piece is our shoes. We need to appropriate God's protection against the unseen forces of Satan by putting on our shoes. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I hope you'll plug in for this last section. He says that we need to stand by putting on the gospel, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The metaphor that he uses here, Roman sandals, were sandals that were strapped to the entire lower leg and they had nails on the bottom of them so that they could grip and, and move quickly. So they wouldn't slip. They, they, they planted a soldier's feet in certainty. And he says that we need to, that we need to have uh, this, we need to stand with these shoes having put on the readiness, which is an establishment. It means a firm foundation. It also conveys the idea of readiness to appropriate the gospel in our own situation and appropriate the gospel to others, give it to others. And so taking the gospel of peace and appropriating it in our lives. Some of us have never gotten peace regarding our salvation. Don't miss that word. Many of us would not, con- would not confess it or admit it, but we've never gotten peace regarding our salvation. 
And so what does Satan do? He wants to lie to us about the simplicity of the gospel, for instance. He, he wants to add to the gospel and tell you that you didn't pray right or you didn't think right or you didn't understand right or something else that's not based on the, the free gift of God. He wants to add to it. That's what he does. And we need to settle that in our hearts and, and understand the simple gospel and apply it. Satan makes us uncomfortable simply living and preaching the gospel. It's a simple message. When I preach grace, I've told you all this before, when I preach grace, you know, if I'm asked to go preach in a church that, that doesn't understand the grace of God, the imputed righteousness of God, when I preach grace in its purity as the scripture presents it, I have people come up to me after the service and say, man, you need to quit preaching like that. People are going to start living in sin. That's what Satan wants us to believe. Just the opposite is true in my life. How about yours? Knowing the truth about the grace of God, and the truth of the gospel, that God gave me something I could never earn myself, that God sustains me because of his faithfulness, not because of my rightness, that he gave me his righteousness in Christ Jesus, man, that motivates me to serve the Lord. It, it reminds me uh, of who I am in Christ, and it makes me realize it's not based on anything I do. So when Satan comes at me and says, you're not a believer, I can say, it's not based on me. Why do you think I'm not a believer? Because you're not acting right. Well, guess what? Look at Jesus. He acted right. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He says, I'm one of his kids. You know, it's not based on anything you do. Quit, quit looking at yourself and trying to say, am I really a Christian? Settle that. You need to put on the shoes of the gospel in your life. Walk in that truth. You are a child of God, not because of yourself, but because of what Jesus did for you. Paul constantly had to deal with this with people. He had to deal with the first thing I talked about. He said, shall, shall we sin more that more grace may abound? God forbid. They got it. They understood that when you preach the gospel of grace, that people are going to want to sin more if they don't really have a relationship with God. But Paul addressed the issue in a number of places. I'll read three scriptures real quickly. 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4. Paul says this, I'm afraid that, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's dealing with his church at Corinth who is receiving this, this doctrine that says they have to act a certain way in order to get approval from God. In addition to their salvation, they need something else. It was another gospel than the one that they had heard from Paul. This gospel is based simply on the, on the, and he talks about that also if you want to go back and read it in 1 Corinthians. The simplicity of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul gives his testimony, he says nothing about his goodness. He talks about how awful he was, how he was a persecutor of the church. And God came to him and saved him. It was nothing Paul did. Paul's righteousness was worthless. In the Galatian church, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, and they were trying to add to the gospel the works of, of religion. He goes on to describe it in chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 2 to 3, he says, let me ask you this, only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? 
Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Church, listen. Very simply. Your salvation is a gift of God. It is not the result of works. We need to understand the gospel is a free gift. It's not dependent upon you at all. It's dependent upon God, and He is faithful. He's worked in your heart. He's drawn you to Himself. You have responded to that gift by receiving Him. Know and understand the content of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, He says this. Here's the content of the gospel. Ready? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and ruled of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He didn't say, you finally got good enough, and so God accepted you. He said, while we were in our transgressions and sin, God made us alive with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in us through Christ Jesus. For it's by grace You've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We need to recognize, church, know and understand the content of the gospel. We were separated from God because of our sin. God loved us enough. He sent Jesus. Jesus died as a, as a sacrifice for our sins. The scripture says so that our sins could be white as snow and they'd be washed away and God would cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Literally, they would never meet. And our sins are gone. White as snow. Not because of our goodness or our righteousness, our ability to act right, but he would remove that from us and that we would receive the righteousness of Christ, that God would make him to become sin for us on the cross so that we could be made the righteousness of God, which is perfection in him. But we can't do it on our own, and our attempts to do it on our own is just, just saying that we don't believe that his work was good enough. He has saved you completely. You are righteous because of Christ. And so now you are free to live your life as God motivates you from the inside, which is a life that wants to live for God. A life that wants to please him, wants to know him. That you need that heart change if you hadn't had that. That heart change, that, that taking out that heart of stone and giving your heart of flesh, and you would obey the laws and decrees because you want to. God works in us now to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Also, know the basis for your eternal security and your assurance of salvation. Some of you believe, yeah, God saved me, but I lost it. God saved me, but I, I couldn't keep it. I can give you a number of verses. I'll just give you one. Time is short. But Romans 8, 38 and 39 says this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor what? Demons, 
neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. By the way, including you. You are not more powerful than angels and demons. You are created by God. You can't separate yourself from God. None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that you are experiencing from God is because of Jesus. And nothing can, can uh, take that away from you. So our faith needs to be based on facts, not on feelings. Satan defeats many of us because we have these feelings of, like, we're not saved. I just don't feel saved today. You know, I'm just not feeling it today. I feel like something's wrong. I feel like God doesn't love me. I feel like God's not for me. God's not with me. I used to feel it, and I'm not feeling it now. We need to base our, our relationship with God and protect ourselves against the enemy by protecting, by appropriating this truth that our salvation has been given to us, that no matter how we act, we can't lose it, that there's no power on earth. Satan himself cannot do anything to take your salvation away from you. You are held in the hand of God because of the love of Christ and because of the sacrifice of Christ. Everybody get that? Say, oh yeah. Hold on to that. So here's what happens. And by the way, one other thing related to this gospel of peace, it is a gospel of peace, two other things. It's the gospel of peace. We should have peace based on the fact that our salvation is not based on us. If you're still trying to earn something from God or think that, that you can do something to, to lose your salvation, then there's no peace there. It's the gospel of peace. But another way to secure that in your mind and heart is to, and to remind yourself of that is to share the gospel. Share this with other people. Man, this is a message that desperately needs to be heard by people in our community. So today, as we talk about putting on our armor, preparing to fight against the enemy who throws lies at us all the time. He's, he is persistent. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is not giving up and he's not backing off. Then we need to realize that there, there's armor that God has given us. And we just need to put it on. It's not complicated, church. It's very simple. It's also not magical. It's very practical. So what do we do? Listen to our commander-in-chief, first of all. What he's telling us to do in this passage. He's the commander. What he's giving us, he's already won the battle. He already knows how to defeat Satan and knows all of his tactics. And we need to listen to him and put these things into practice. We need to put on our belt of truth. That is, every lie that Satan tells us, we need to make it obedient to Christ. We need to read the word, pray the word, memorize the word, meditate on the word, study the word, be together with the body when we're discussing the word, come together on a Sunday and hear the word preached for our body. Get the word in your life. Put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Live according to God's commands, the things that he's telling you to do. You want life? You want full life, full and meaningful life? You want a life to the, uh, that's abundant? Then obey what God told you to do. That's where life comes from. Appropriate the righteousness that you know, the truths that God has told you. Quit hiding sins. Be truthful to the people that you're around. Get in a life group and share your, your baggage and know that this body is going to accept you and love you and not condemn you. Get freed up. 
from the bondage that Satan says to you all the time, you're lying about that, you're lying about that. Quit denying it. Put on the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, live a life of obedience to God. And then, look, just accept that the gospel is very simple. That everything's been taken care of for you. It's just a matter of receiving the free gift that God gives. Scripture's clear. Sin separates us from God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we each try to make sense of the Scripture for ourselves <coughs> and what you're saying to us, I pray for honesty, Lord, that we would be truthful about where we are, God, that we would appropriate this armor. God, as we move forward in this study of what it means to be a, a community that blesses, God, we are under attack already, and we know that the enemy is not giving up. And so, Father, as, as we face his attacks this week, I just pray, Lord, that these truths would come to light in our lives, that we would see the reality of these things that we've studied today and that we would, God, put on our belt of truth and, and the breastplate of righteousness in our feet, our shoes of the gospel, God, that we would put them on. As consistent as Satan is to distract us and to lie to us, God, we need to, we need to appropriate these truths. We never take them off, but we need to have them in our minds and hearts, the truth about who you are and what you've done and who we are in Christ. So help us this week as we do that. We, we praise you, God. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name.